Chapter 5 Ethics and the Chief End of Man Man's most refined and most popular means of sinning is by means of morality. Man-centered standards of morality are created, whereby the varying human requirements for social order are met, and God is asked to be grateful to man for his most elementary decency. Moreover, man insists on establishing his own way of salvation by means of works of morality and requires that God ratify man's values by making them his own. Here is the heart of the matter. Is man the source of values and standards, or is God the source? Can man, as Carnell seems sometimes to argue, establish laws of logical or moral contradiction and hold whatever gods may be to meeting them, or must man meet God's standards? Indeed, all things are possible with God, but if one may speak of an impossible possibility, it would be this, that God meet man's standards and conform to man's values. The thought itself is a monstrosity, and yet, though not so baldly stated, the major drift of ethical theory is precisely towards requiring that God approve of and conform to man's moral sense. Man refuses to acknowledge the taint of his sinful nature and insists that God must behave according to man's lights, and the fundamental nature of the universe must be as man would have it to be. It is for this reason that morality represents man's highest and most high-handed sin. It is for this reason also that much of Christian ethical theory and practice represents the most vicious affront to God and is far more deadly than the sins of the profligate and erring. It is not enough to say, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and to abstain from committing it. One can be chaste in order to avoid a messy personal life, in fear of disease, to avoid extra expense, to avoid the psychological tensions which adultery produces in our social context, to further one's self-righteous pretensions to virtue, to claim salvation from God, or one can be chaste to the glory and enjoyment of God. Many of the Ten Commandments can be duplicated or paralleled in some fashion in almost every human society. But even in their biblical wording, they are without Christian significance unless taken in the context of a God-centered faith in life. Thus, the only valid approach is precisely that made by Van Til in his Christian theistic ethics. If morality is not Christian theistic, it is immoral. An instance of this non-theistic ethical theory is the following from a teacher's manual with regard to the golden rule. Explain that this rule represents a great racial achievement in group living and that it is not based on the arbitrary demands of either a god or a society. To the Christian, all such non-theistic morality is immoral and that it makes man, the race, or the group the source of value rather than God. If God be the source of value, then the heart of all theistic ethical theory is clearly stated in the Catechism answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man's summum bonum, his total and highest good, is the kingdom of God. As Jesus stated it, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, the values the world prizes, shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. For the consistent Christian, then, ethics must be God-centered. Values and truth do not constitute a standard which God and man must alike meet, but rather are an expression of the nature of God, and therefore of the nature of Jesus Christ. Accordingly, it becomes impossible to subscribe to the ethics of Jesus' school of teaching.
The fallacy of such thought is that it separates the ethical teaching of Jesus from the person of Jesus and takes for granted the pagan position that truth is truth in itself and that Jesus only looks up to it. So also they have taken for granted that goodness is goodness in itself and does not proceed from the person of Christ as a standard. In all such thinking, God ceases to be God, and man's conception of goodness takes precedence over God. True Christian theistic ethics rests therefore on a specific conception of God and a specific conception of the nature of Christ. Thus, in the Christian ethical theory, a fundamental epistemological difference appears. For all other thinking, the moral consciousness of man is the ultimate source of information, whereas Christian thought regards it as only the immediate or proximate source of information on ethical problems. The sovereign and self-contained God, the ontological trinity, is the ultimate reference point. Unhappily, too many ostensibly Christian thinkers regard man's moral consciousness as determinative. As Simon Weil observed, in a document promulgated by the Pope, one may read, not only from the Christian point of view, but, more generally, from the human point of view. As though the Christian point of view, which either has no meaning at all, or else it claims to encompass everything in this world and the next, possessed a minor degree of generality than the human point of view. It is impossible to conceive a more terrible admission of religious bankruptcy. The difference in the two approaches to ethics is seen clearly in the concept of the good. As Van Til states, for the Christian, the good is good because God says it is good. As such, it is contrasted with non-Christian thought, which says the good exists in its right, and that God strives for this good which exists in its right. Since goodness is an expression of God's nature and will, and this nature and will of God is personal, the good is not something which exists in its own right, but is good because God says so. This fact has great importance for the doctrine of man. Man was created in the image of God, as a perfect, though finite, replica of the Godhead. As such, therefore, man was created good. The doctrine of the image of God in man implies and necessitates the original righteousness of man, unless we begin with a finite God struggling with evil within himself and creating a man in his own dualistic image. But for the Christian, there cannot be any evil in God. The absoluteness of God makes such a view impossible. According to Scripture, man was created in the image of God, good and with an originally righteous moral consciousness. This original perfection of man was not metaphysical but ethical, not infinite but finite, and, because finite, required revelation to live. Man had to be receptively reconstructive in all his being, because, being derivative, his goodness could continue only as long as he continued receptive to the source of his image, his righteousness, and his very life. The non-Christian thinks of man's moral activity as creatively constructive, and man is therefore not responsible to any absolute moral personality, while for the Christian, responsibility is central and his goodness derivative. Because man has rebelled against God, he has blinded his intellect and his will by his sin. Having established his own will as determinative of right and wrong as a consequence of succumbing to the temptation to be God, man can no longer do God's will. Instead, he seeks to establish his own will and his own concept of the good in terms of his will and his autonomous consciousness, his claim to be God. 
As a result, man cannot know what good is, because he worships the creature rather than the creator and reverses all moral standards. He is totally depraved, i.e., every aspect of his being is infected, tainted and corrupted by his sin, and marked by a radical perversity towards God. Man's moral consciousness, as man is today, cannot be therefore the source of valid information about the good or anything related thereto, in that man refuses to face the basic moral question, the absolute sovereignty of God. This makes the external revelation of Scripture a necessity, and Scripture alone gives the authoritative answer to all moral questions or the light in terms of which all moral questions must be answered. Sin made necessary the external revelation of Scripture, because man's moral consciousness is now both finite and sinful. Scripture is still a necessity for the regenerated man, because regenerated man must still live by revelation, and because his regenerated consciousness is changed in principle only, is not perfected and often errs, and hence requires the light of Scripture. With the light of Scripture, man is able to render the ethical obedience required of him, the recognition of his creaturehood, and the necessity of thinking God's thoughts after him and acting in terms of God's revealed will. Redemption means restoration to the recognition of creaturehood and a faithful living in terms of it. As Van Til so clearly states it, this obedience cannot be set against the conception of love as the higher ethical course because the conception of love in the New Testament means, as far as its ethical interpretation is concerned, nothing but the complete willingness and the internal desire to be perfectly obedient to God. Summing up the whole matter with respect to the epistemological presuppositions of Christian ethics, we may say that the Christian theistic conception of an absolute God and an absolute Christ and an absolute Scripture go hand in hand. We cannot accept one without accepting the others. It is with the scriptures as an absolute and an absolutely comprehensive authority that we enter upon a discussion of ethical questions as they confront us. We are fully persuaded that the only logical alternative to this position is the position of an out-and-out -out pragmatism. All halfway positions eventually lead to either one or the other of the two positions spoken of, an absolute submission to Scripture and to God, or an absolute rejection of both. In this Thomistic conception of the autonomous consciousness and will of men, Roman Catholicism takes a halfway position. By emphasizing the intellectual capacity of man apart from God to know truth correctly, and by approaching the ethical problem from the standpoint of finite rather than the moral obedience, Thomas Aquinas undermined the absoluteness of the Christian faith. If man's problem is primarily metaphysical rather than moral, then man's sin is his creaturehood, not his rebellion against God. A similar failure characterizes much Protestant thought. Van Til tellingly stresses the metaphysical presuppositions of Christian ethics and their implications. Before there can be ethics, there must be responsibility. Here a problem comes into focus. Is man responsible? if he is dependent upon his environment? On the other hand, can man be regarded as responsible if he is wholly independent? If man's will is wholly dependent, can ethics exist? Is not man, then, beyond accountability and responsibility? Basic to the Christian approach is the faith that a character can be created as well as accomplished, as in the case of Adam. 
Again, basic is the faith that ethical substitution can be made, and that Christ's substitutionary atonement has altered both the relationship of believing men to God and their character as well. These things are understandable only in terms of the God concept of Christian ethics. As Van Til points out, the Christian conception of God is that he is both absolute rationality and absolute will, so that God does not have to become good, but from all eternity has been good. Thus, in God there is eternal accomplishment and ultimate self-determination, absolute freedom. Thus, there is no environment for the will of God, whereas non-Christian thought assumes an environment for both God and man, an ultimate activism in which God also must become good or work towards the fulfillment of character. As a result, as in Plato and modern idealism, the good rather than God is the ultimate concept and determinative of both God and man. God is thus made determined rather than self-determinative. This absolute goodness requires a struggling God and man, working to attain goodness. Creation is ultimately impersonal, because goodness is impersonal, and man flounders from ultimate chance, in some philosophies, to ultimate necessitarianism or determinism in others. For the Christian, on the other hand, the ultimate and self-determinative God is personal and makes possible human responsibility and ultimate personalism. Man has been created a character because man is created as an analog of God. Because man is created in the image of God, he is not a blank morally or intellectually. To deny that man was created a character is therefore ultimately to deny that God is the eternal character and self-determinative, because the image of God cannot be maintained as a valid concept without this correlation. All man's activity is within the environment of a created and personal world and an absolute and self-determinative God, and hence all his activity is against the background of the plan of God, including his sin. This, however, does not make God responsible for sin. Man does not exist in the void but within the framework of God's creation, by virtue of which he alone can be considered responsible. The existence of environment does not negate responsibility. The created nature of man's character does not destroy man's responsibility, but is the ground of it. It is a false attempt on the part of some to escape this paradox by speaking of the self-limitation of God. Van Til succinctly analyzes the fallacy of such thinking. It would be self-contradictory for God to limit himself. It is of his very essence to be self-determinative. And since he is eternal, he cannot be self-determinative at one time and no longer self-determinative at another time. The self-limitation of God sacrifices the self-sufficiency of God. It is this self-sufficiency of God in which our whole hope for any solution to any problem lies. The more you break it down, the more you work into the hands of the enemy. And for that reason, it is that so far from establishing freedom for man by reducing this relationship to the plan of God, you are destroying his freedom and therewith the responsibility of man by doing so. True freedom for man consists in self-conscious, analogical activity. If man freely recognizes the fact that back of his created character lies the eternal character and plan of God, if man freely recognizes that his every moral act presupposes back of it this same unlimited God, he will be free indeed. On the other hand, if man tries to liberate himself from the background of the absolute plan of God, he has to start his moral activity in a perfect blank. 
he has to continue to act as a moral blank, and he has to act in the direction of a moral blank. Moral activity not only presupposes a sovereign and self-sufficient God, but also God as man's highest good. God and the glory of God must be the object of all man's activity and the purpose of his every act. Not only is man's morality founded on religion, but it must itself be religious activity. Man's morality thus has as its purpose the glory of God. This purpose he serves first by seeking to establish the kingdom of God, second by relying not on his own will in this task, but on the revealed will of God in Scripture as his criterion, and third, by recognizing that of himself he has no power to work towards the kingdom of God, but must rely on the Holy Spirit, who is the author of regeneration and faith, which provides his motivation. Both in religion and morality, regenerate man seeks the glory of God, but in religion directly and in ethics indirectly. Van Til analyzes this common purpose and its varied approach most cogently. He points out that first, in both ethics and religion, we deal with the whole personality of man, which cannot be departmentalized. Second, both deal with the whole personality of man in that they seek to make man whole again. And, as Van Til states, one cannot be a true man unless he be a Christian. One cannot act as a man unless one acts as a Christian. Third, both ethics and religion deal with the whole personality of man in the configuration of the entire human race, and that neither exists or has meaning apart from the other. Fourth, both deal with mankind under the aspect of history or temporality. Man but stultifies himself if he tries to become eternal. Religious activity as well as ethical activity is always temporal activity. Romanism virtually denies this, and evangelicalism all too constantly forgets it. Fifth, in both, we deal with historical mankind as genuinely revelatory of God and as genuinely significant for the development of God's purpose with the universe. The end and purpose of the universe is the glory of God. The distinction between religion and ethics cannot be found ultimately by saying that in religion we seek God while in ethics we seek something else. We seek God in everything, if we look at the matter from the most ultimate point of view. Sixth, both deal with the aspect of the whole personality known as the will, but with a difference. In Van Til's terminology, religion sees man not only as king, but as priest and prophet, not only in his volitional, but intellectual and emotional aspects, while ethics deals more with man as king, man as actor rather than as thinker and feeler. Seventh, another difference appears in that man's volitional activity which ethics deals with is seen under the view of its immediate results in history, while religion is more concerned with God above history. In religion, man deals with God, in ethics, with his fellow man. To return to man's summum bonum, the kingdom of God, Van Til defines it as the realized program of God for man, which man must adopt as his own ideal and then embark on a course of action to attain it. Man was created a king and commissioned to realize his kingship by exercising dominion and the full implications of the image of God in every field of activity and life. Man as king is therefore God's vice-regent in history. This fact has tremendous implications for man as an individual and for society. The ethical ideal for the individual man is self-realization. 
Van Til phrases it magnificently. That the ethical ideal for man should be self-realization follows from the central place given him in this universe. God made all things in this universe for himself, that is, for his own glory. But not all things can reflect his glory self-consciously. Yet it is self-conscious glorification that is the highest kind of glorification. Accordingly, God put all things in this universe into covenant relationship with one another. He made man the head of creation. Accordingly, the flowers of the field glorified God directly and unconsciously, but also indirectly and consciously through man. Man was to gather up into the prism of his self-conscious activity all the manifold manifestations of the glory of God in order to make one central self-conscious sacrifice of it all to God. Man prepares himself for the great and glorious task by developing his intellect, his ascetic capacity, and his every capacity as an act of will by striving to fulfill his calling and his kingship. He must will to will the will of God for the whole world. Self-realization is the fulfillment of man's kingship. When man becomes truly the king of the universe, the kingdom of God is realized, and when the kingdom of God is realized, then God is glorified. Fantil develops more specifically what is involved in this goal of self-realization. First of all, man must learn to will the will of God. This means that man must work out his own will in terms of its created purpose. Man's created purpose is to serve God as vice-regent, and the more man fulfills his purpose, the more free and spontaneous he becomes. As a result, Christian morality, in sharp contrast to all legalism, is a growth in spontaneity. A forced and frustrating moralism is not Christianity. Second, man's will needs to become increasingly fixed in its self-determination. This is a development of his spontaneity. Man's God is absolutely self-determinate. Man will be godlike in proportion that he becomes self-determining and self-determinate under God. In proportion that man develops his self-determination, does he develop God's determination or plan for his kingdom on earth? God accomplishes his plans through self-determined characters. An unstable man would be useless in the kingdom of God. Third, as man increases in his spontaneity and self-determinateness, his will must increase in momentum to meet his ever-increasing responsibility. His growth means a growing enlargement of the area of his activity, which makes necessary a parallel growth in momentum. Self-realization can also be described as a growth in righteousness, defined by Van Til in line with Voss. Righteousness, when taken as an attribute of God, describes that aspect of the entire personality of God by which he maintains within his being and within his created universe that relation of coordination and subordination which is proper to the station of each personality. Accordingly, man's righteousness, which ought to be a reproduction of the righteousness of God, would be, to begin with, a proper sense of subordination of himself to God, and of coordination of himself with his fellow man. And man seeking righteousness would mean, a, that he was becoming increasingly sensitive to the meaning of these relationships of subordination and coordination, and therefore increasingly spontaneous in his desire to maintain these relationships b. That he was becoming ever stronger in his determination to see these relationships maintained and developed, and c. That he therefore would actually increase in his power to maintain these relationships. 
Now if we contemplate righteousness as a matter of right relations among all creatures, and of the right relation of all creatures to their Creator, it becomes clear that the will of man had a great comprehensive task to perform. By seeking righteousness, the will of man was seeking the kingdom of God. Righteousness is the sinews of the kingdom of God. Man's growth in self-realization is, we have seen, his growth also in spontaneity and freedom. Vantil makes very clear the full significance of this spontaneity. In God there is no difference between potentiality and act, that is, God is fully and perfectly self-conscious, without any unconscious instincts and drives. Man, as a temporal being, cannot be entirely self-conscious as God is self-conscious, nor pure act as God is pure act. Before the fall, however, man's will controlled his subconscious life, while after the fall, man's subconscious life controlled his will. This is not a metaphysical but a moral change. Fallen man is a slave to his subconscious rather than master of it. But as a regenerate man grows in self-realization, he grows first in his control of his subconscious, in the spontaneity of his reactions, and in his self-consciousness. Second, there is not only increase in the swiftness of his spontaneity, but also an increase in stability. Third, parallel to this is a growth of momentum in doing the will of God. Not only is man's task to seek the kingdom of God, but also the task of society as a whole, an ideal and task set before man in paradise. The covenant responsibility makes clear that the self-realization of the individual is the advantage of all and is furthered by and dependent upon the realization of others. The pagan conception of self-realization involves the sacrifice of others and is at their expense. The Christian conception of self-realization is in terms of the kingdom of God and a common humanity and organism. The conception of the church as a body stresses the fact that individuality is not monotonous repetition. We are not all identical organs, eyes or ears, but each a separate individual and yet part of a common whole. We serve that whole by developing our own individuality, which thereby develops the whole and enables others to develop their own individualities. Health and prosperity are legitimate parts of this ideal. The Christian ethics is not ascetic, nor is, as Van Til emphasizes, the body to be regarded as ethically lower than the soul. A sound mind in a sound body is a true kingdom goal. It is paganism to hold to evil as inherent in matter. Self-realization is productive of happiness, in that a realized self is a happy self, and, at the same time, only a happy self is completely realized self. Even as bodily exercise leads to health, so growth in righteousness creates growth in happiness. In the kingdom of God, there is no disharmony between that which is righteous, that which is useful, and that which makes for happiness. When we turn to non-Christian thought, we find that all the various systems have in common a conception of existence, as it is today, as being normal. There is a denial of the biblical concept of original righteousness, of created character, and of the fall. There is a denial also of any ethical ideal given by a self-sufficient God by means of which all systems of ethics must be judged. Behind this denial lies a radical hostility to God. According to Van Til, the real meaning of this opposition to the original perfect ethical ideal is nothing short of hatred of the living God. If God does exist as man's creator, 
We have seen it is impossible that evil should be inherent in the temporal universe. If God exists, man himself must have brought in sin by an act of willful transgression. Hence, existence, as it now is, is not normal, but abnormal. Accordingly, to maintain that existence, as it now is, is normal, is tantamount to a denial of man's responsibility for sin, and this in turn makes God responsible for sin, and this simply means that there is no absolute God. For the Christian, however, man is today a broken personality, in that the various aspects of his being are no longer in right relationship one to another because he is not in right relationship to God. He may, for example, be given to a one-sided intellectualism or to a one-sided voluntarism. In any and all such cases, the one-sidedness is a consequence of sin. Man was created in perfect harmony with himself because he was created in perfect harmony with God. Hence, Christian ethics can never be one-sidedly intellectualistic or one-sidedly voluntaristic. We do not say that as Christians we are not often one-sided. As a matter of fact, no one escapes being one-sided to some extent. But we confess that this one-sidedness is sin before God and we hold that harmony between the various aspects of human personality can be obtained on no other than the Christian basis. Basic to Christian faith is, first, the assumption that man was created a whole personality, and that man can again become a whole personality only through Christian faith and maturity. Second, another basic presupposition is the doctrine of creation, whereby mankind is a common whole and bound by a common ethical ideal as given by the Creator. All non-Christian thought in denying the doctrine of creation denies itself thereby a universalism of meaning and a unity of interpretation. Third, it follows, therefore, that men in all places and ages must be thought of as a family, and ethics cannot be, as non-Christian ethics is, individualistic. Individualistic ethics falls between two extremes. It sacrifices, as in Plato, most individuals to a small number deemed worthy of the sacrifice, without any organic conception of the nation or the race. Statism is, as Van Til clearly sees, individualism of the worst sort. The mass of humanity is regarded as manure for the welfare of the ruling class. Modern individualistic ethics often goes to the other extreme and regards society as an aggregate of individuals and dissipates all authority. When the right of the individual as against the right of society is emphasized, authority disappears. In Van Til's words, consequently, there is no proper sense of the necessity of authority. Authority has largely disappeared from the family. The autocracy of the father, as has often existed, in the perverted individualism of old, has been replaced by the autocracy of the child in the perverted individualism today. The autocracy of king, which did not recognize the rights of the subjects, has been replaced with a false democracy, which seeks the ultimate source of authority in the multitude of men without recognition of God. Non-Christian thought, lacking the biblical concept of creation and original righteousness, assumes a natural conflict between society and the individual. It assumes that the individual cannot develop except at the expense of other individuals and society, and vice versa, that society cannot develop except at the expense of the individual. Thus, life becomes a warfare, and ethics becomes either individualistic or compromising. 
Aristotle's answer was the doctrine of the mean, of the middle of the rotor, as the virtuous man. This is virtually a denial of the ideal of moral perfection and assumes that virtue is merely keeping a balance between two evils. The Christian, on the other hand, is in virtue of his justification and regeneration, in principle perfect, though not in this life in degree perfect. The principle of his life is the perfection of Jesus Christ, not the negative effort of keeping balance between evils. The absolute ideal is maintained throughout Scripture, although the absolute summon bonum will never be reached on earth. The original righteousness of man and his creation in the image of God make it reasonable to expect that the absolute ideal will be gained and is the proper goal of historical activity. The biblical promise is that complete happiness will come to the perfect, whereas the penalty for disobedience is death. The goal of history is thus perfection, and its realization, the kingdom of God, is portrayed in Revelation as paradise regained, a life in which natural and moral evil are destroyed. Natural and moral evil are closely allied in Scripture, not in pagan terms as resulting one from the other, natural evil as a result of moral evil, but rather both alike a result of the fall and man's alienation from God. With the regenerate, the kingdom of God is not only an objective and a hope, but a present possession as a gift of God. The perfection they strive for is theirs in principle now, by virtue of the substitutionary role of Jesus Christ. Thus, as John states, the Christian in principle cannot sin, although he is in degree a sinner and cannot deny his sin without being a liar. Thus, while man must strive for the kingdom, he must also recognize that it is the gift of God and his very striving and act and manifestation of grace. Not only is man's task the positive one of asserting and extending the dominion rights of the kingdom, but also the negative one of destroying the works of the evil one. As Van Til states, the regenerate see evil as an insult to God. Not only must evil be destroyed everywhere, but its consequences also, while on the other hand, there is the positive requirement to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Evil must be destroyed in the world at large, and in ourselves, and God is ready to use the heathen as a scourge against his own in order to cleanse them. So seriously does he regard evil in his people. The Christian must not surrender to the pessimism of unbelieving realism or to the shallow optimism of uncomprehending perfectionism. A particular point is that of the Christian's attitude toward the abolition of war. Some would hold that since the Bible tells us that there will be wars till the end of time, it would be flying in the face of providence if we should try to outlaw war. But there is a difference between a commandment of God and a statement of what will come to pass. God commands us to be perfect, but tells us that none of us will ever be perfect in this life. So it is our plain task to do what we can, in legitimate ways, to lessen the number of wars and to make them less gruesome. A great deal of our time will have to be taken up with the destruction of evil. We may not even seem to see much progress in ourselves or round about us during our lifetime. We shall have to build with the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. It may seem to us to be a hopeless task of sweeping the ocean dry. Yet we know that this is exactly what our ethical ideal would be if we were not Christians. We know that for non-Christians, their ethical ideal can never be realized either for themselves or for society. They do not even know the true ethical ideal. 
And as to our own efforts, we know that though much of our time may have to be taken up with pumping out the water of sin, we are nevertheless laying the foundation of our bridge on solid rock, and we are making progress toward our goal. Our victory is certain. The devil and all his servants will be put out of the habitable universe of God. There will be a new heaven and a new earth on which righteousness will dwell. Because of this foundation, true Christian faith has an ethics of hope and involves not only striving, but possessing. The absolute ideal is presented in severity, as the Old Testament itself witnesses, and such concessions as the era witnessed did not compromise the absoluteness of the ideal or its severity. Such concessions as the Old Testament evidences are made, not in terms of the ultimate goal, but in terms of more immediate goals, which are in themselves stepping stones to the ideal. The absoluteness of the goal is more openly set forth in the New Testament by means of the example of Jesus Christ. In order to understand the full meaning of his example, it is necessary to believe that origin does affect validity that a Christ coming from the background of the self-contained God and ontological trinity is different from one born out of an evolutionary process and a background in which evil is as basic as the good. First, therefore, creation must be presupposed in all its implications. If the perfect man Jesus is to be of any service to us, the constitution of the universe must be such that perfection is a concept that has cosmic significance. Second, to be valid, the example of Jesus presupposes the fall. This means that, because we are created righteous, we have an obligation to be perfect and are responsible for our present evil estate. We must either be like Jesus or be condemned by him. He comes as Savior or is met as Judge. Third, the example of Jesus, in the true Christian sense, presupposes his substitutionary atonement. The required perfection is made a gift by God and is man's in principle on regeneration. Our imitation of Christ must be properly conceived as an imitation of God, a union with him. But this union can never be conceived of in mystical or metaphysical terms. It is a union of life, not of substance, ethical, not essential. It is typified in scripture as marriage. True marriage is true union, not of substance, but of life. The man does not cease to be a man, nor the woman a woman, but each fulfills himself in terms of sex and life and becomes more himself or herself while more truly one. Thus man becomes more fully man as he becomes more truly one with Christ. Christ is our example is thus primarily Christ is our mediator and redeemer. And Christ as our king means that the kingship of Christ must be carried out in every sphere of life. For the church to limit herself to soul-saving is to deny his kingship over all creation and to limit the crown rights of King Jesus. As Van Til points out, evangelical churches have too commonly fallen into an anti-biblical individualism in their exclusive concern with soul-saving, while modernism, in abandoning the substitutionary atonement, has returned to the righteousness of the Pharisees and seeks to establish the kingdom by man's effort and man's righteousness, and it's consequently man-centered in its conception of the kingdom. The whole end and purpose of history lies, according to Christian theism, not in history itself, but beyond history, in the God of history. This God of history has set the kingdom of God as the climax of history. The revealed will of God must therefore be man's ethical standard. 
the moral consciousness of man as it is today only corroborates the idea of the fall of man. It assumes its authority and autonomy and denies that God is creator. It denies, therefore, external revelation, since it cannot credit external authority. Christian theism, because of its transcendent God, can allow for external as well as internal revelation, while non-theistic thought, because of its denial of the transcendence of God, can, in the nature of the case, allow for no external standard at all. Non-Christian thought must, by virtue of its presuppositions, maintain that all external revelations are based upon delusion. The rationale of man's moral action must be found in something beyond himself. In the nature of the case, the external must always be prior to the internal. Unless this external and divine ethical standard be maintained, there is moral anarchy. Without the God of Scripture, there is only ethical advice, no authority. There is no alternative but that of theonomy and autonomy. It is vain to attempt to flee from God and flee to a universe in order to seek eternal laws there. The external, absolute standard of the self-sufficient God is therefore the only valid one. While naturalistic ethics trust the immediate deliverances of man's moral consciousness, Christianity holds to the principle of mediacy, in that man's moral consciousness is not expected to function autonomously but is correlative to supernatural positive revelation and, by the Holy Spirit, is led to increasing trust on that standard and activity in terms of that faith. Such, in brief, is Van Til's conception of Christian theistic ethics. His study, which contains some of his most brilliant writing, is an eloquent answer to those who complain that Van Til is too difficult to understand. The difficulty most people experience is not with Van Til's writing, but with his God. It is essentially he whom they find inacceptable and offensive. Their quarrel is not with what they cannot understand in Van Til, but with that which they all too clearly understand.